um, again, a team of, of like-minded people with different skill sets around you. If you can't do that, then you probably should join a larger group. If you join a larger group, you have two options. Stay there forever and become part of the community and partner, or learn from the older person in the group who's a managing person, and over time, go out on your own. Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Timothy Deer. Dr. Deer and I talk about all kinds of things, ranging from his career in endurance athletics to some of the most exciting things he sees right now in pain research to things that he recommends that young clinicians get exposure to uh, in order to succeed in the business end of pain, as well as some of the exciting new work that he's doing with the American Society of Pain and Neuroscience. So you don't want to miss this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to episode 29 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. This week, I'm very excited to interview Dr. Timothy Deer. Tim is the president and CEO of the Spine and Nerve Centers of the Virginias. He's the past president of the International Neuromodulation Society, as well as the co-founder and chairman of the American Society of Pain and Neuroscience. He's a prolific researcher and thought leader in pain medicine, and he's also a 13-time Ironman, and I understand maybe soon to be 14 and 15-time Ironman, and I couldn't be more pleased to have him here today. Welcome, Dr. Deer. Well, Justin, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to our conversation. And uh, to start us off, I understand that you are a proud mountaineer from West Virginia. And uh, as I mentioned, I'm from uh, I'm from Western Pennsylvania. So I have some of my earliest memories growing up are watching the backyard brawl in Pittsburgh, where University of Pittsburgh and the Mountaineers would square yeah, that's, off. That's uh, that's true as well for me. We've been through a lot of backyard brawls, and uh, it's really a good rivalry. <laughs> um, people from West Virginia don't tend to like people from Pittsburgh very much, but uh, you yeah. seem to, you seem to be a nice guy, Justin. So I think we'll get along just fine. Uh, so in addition, I recently listened to your interview on the Purple Patch podcast, which is dedicated, as I understand it, to endurance athletics. And one of the, you know, perhaps little known facts about you uh, is that you recently completed the, the Badwater Ultra Endurance Race. So can you maybe just starting us off, staying away from medicine for a minute, just tell us a little bit about this race and what that entails. Because I, in learning about this, I just found it to be absolutely incredible. Well, so, you know, I, I was a, I've been a, a long-term marathoner and uh, I'm getting ready to do my 15th Boston this year. And uh, so then I went to Ironman and actually I'm getting ready just to correct a little bit what you said in the beginning. I'm going to do my 20th and 21st Ironman oh, wow. okay. coming up. Uh, my numbers are out of date. <laughs> yeah. Coming up here on, uh, on oh, next week in Chattanooga and then 13 days later in, in Kona. So, so I wanted a new challenge. I started doing hundred mile runs. I did the Leadville 103 times and then did the, um, the keys 50 miler and uh, was lucky enough to win that race overall. Wow. But, and then I did the keys 100, uh, and then used those races to apply for the Badwater 135, which many people feel is the hardest, uh, you know, event and running in the world. And it's, uh, it's been kind of called that by many people, including people like David Goggins and some of the world's greatest endurance people. So uh, I was able to complete that this July in, in Death Valley. Wow. So, and just for our listeners, it's, can you just describe the race in brief, like the, the course it's 135 miles, but it's not just any 135 miles. There's massive elevation changes as well as extreme temperatures. Yeah. The Badwater 135 is a, is a foot race from Badwater Basin, the lowest point in continental America to, um, 
Whitney Portal, which is on the highest uh, uh, mountain in continental U.S., uh, Mount Whitney. And during that time, you run uh, across Death Valley during the Jul- mid-July, which is the hottest time of the year, uh, without stopping, basically. You know, you have 48 hours to complete that race uh, uh, and uh, to be a finisher. Um, and 100 people are chosen each year. About 2,500 people have applications that meet the requirements, which is a certain number of 100 milers. And, and then of those 2,500, they choose 100. And so uh, to get in the race is the hard part. Uh, once you're in the race, uh, finishing the race is uh, somewhat even harder. And then once you finish the race, uh, you're pretty happy. So it's, it was a great experience for me. And uh, uh, Chris Kosman and his team there at the uh, Badwater 135 did an amazing job. Yeah. And one of the stories that made me laugh from that uh, that interview was you running 10 miles a day in Florida in the heat in a parka and a hat. So I'm sure that was that was turning some heads down there in Florida. Yeah. You know, I have a place in Northwest Florida where I vacation often and uh, where I eventually probably will retire to someday. And and so um, my coach, Matt Dixon, and I talked about acclimation and we decided to do a two-week acclimation and eight days of that, I was on vacation in Florida. So every afternoon, <laughs> about three o'clock, I'd be in the 90s and I was wearing a, a fleece uh, sweater, a parka and a wool hat with sweatpants. And uh, I'd do about 10 miles in that. And uh, yeah, the looks I got, Justin, were pretty... Uh, People thought I was a little psychotic, but uh, having said that, I, I didn't cramp any and I never got nauseated and I had a really good race wow. in, uh, in Badwater. So that acclimation worked pretty well. Well, that is excellent. So I'd love to get to know you just a little bit as a person. So, you know, obviously right now you're a very accomplished physician and endurance athlete. Uh, where do you come from, from like a family geography education standpoint? Yeah, I'm from Chesapeake, West Virginia, where I grew up, um, which is a coal mining town about 15 miles uh, due east of Charleston, West Virginia, where I currently live. Uh, my dad was a coal miner, my mother a licensed practical nurse, uh, and they um, they uh, raised me to, through in that little town, and uh, and I, I was really into sports like uh, football from the time I was a little kid, and and ran track, and uh, certainly sports and academics were the two things I really uh, enjoyed as a kid and uh, grew up there until I went to, off to college and played a few years of college football and, and then a small college in West Virginia and then um, medical school at West Virginia. Okay. And when did you decide that uh, medical school was going to be in your future? Well, when I was about five or six years old, my dad would come home from the mines and both my grandpa's and they would be uh, pretty beaten up at the end of the day. You know, and they were hardworking people, but uh, it looked like a pretty rough life. And uh, so I decided at that point, uh, one of my uncles, uh, Jim Cottrell, was a, a physician. And uh, I would visit him in New York City. And I thought, well, you know, this type of lifestyle might be a little better life for me. And then I started um, really looking into, into helping people and medicine and what we could do for people. And a combination of uh, wanting to do something different than coal mining and uh, wanting to help people brought me to medicine. Yeah. Okay. And and what about pain specifically? Was that something that you knew from the beginning? No, actually, when I finished, I was a, I was a fairly intense medical student. And so I was torn between cardiology and neurosurgery. I couldn't make my mind up. In fact, I interviewed for both for residency and I chose cardiology over neurosurgery because I really thought interventional cardiology, they were doing this new thing called angioplasty. And I thought this is going to be the future. But after about six months of internal medicine, which uh, no offense to him, any internist friends, but that drove me crazy because it was so non-interventional. I decided I, I either needed to go and do neurosurgery or do critical care. Well, at that time, critical care was an anesthesia-based specialty. Now it's more pulmonary. Uh, 
So I switched into anesthesiology to really focus on critical care initially. Mm. And then, uh, and then you made your way to pain. Did you kind of decide that critical care wasn't a good fit? No, I, I like critical care. I like transplant anesthesia. I like neuroanesthesia. I never heard of pain before. I didn't know it was a specialty. Uh, there was a guy at University of Virginia named John Rawlingson, who was a, a really renowned regional anesthesiologist, and he was running the pain program. So they made me rotate through pain because it was a requirement. And uh, I didn't want to do that, um, to be honest with you. And then I, we, we did a couple of procedures on people suffering from cancer pain who were miserable. And they got amazing relief and was able to, they were end of life patients, but they died quite comfortably uh, with their family uh, after these procedures. And I realized what we could do. And then I, I learned about neuromodulation uh, while, while I was in training and decided to do a pain fellowship. And I really thought neuromodulation was going to be the future of our field. Hmm. And what was the neuromodulation landscape like at that time? Uh, you know, during your training, obviously it was, it was probably in its nascency, I would imagine. It was pretty poor. Uh, there was a few people around the country doing it. And uh, they had a, a course uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, about a month into my fellowship. And they only had two spots for fellows. And uh, so uh, there was about 40 people ahead of me on the waiting list. And somehow or another, I talked my way into that course. And so I met, <laughs> I met people like uh, Elliot Cranes, uh, Sam Hassenbush, Giancarlo Barilot, uh, Rick North. And those people were, were the early pioneers in this area for me. And, and um, I, I really enjoyed that. I went back to University of Virginia and I said, let's do an implant. And uh, that, didn't, that didn't happen. So my, my attendings weren't doing many implants. So I said, can I go spend some time with some other folks? So I got to spend a little time with uh, someone named Dean Willis, a doctor down in Alabama, a little time with Elliot Crames, a little time up at Johns Hopkins with my friend Peter Statz. So uh, I was able to see other things going on. And I decided when I got to West Virginia after my fellowship that this was going to be a, a way I was going to try to avoid chronic opioids. Even back then, I wasn't a big fan of, of, of long-term chronic opioids. I thought we could do a better job with this type of uh, advanced medicine. So that's the landscape was was mostly paddle leads by neurosurgeons, and there wasn't many of us around at that time. Did you have any formative experiences or patient interactions uh, with like a specific instance where you can remember where you it was sort of a you know an inflection point for you where it it made you kind of believe in the future of neuromodulation? Yeah, absolutely. So my I, I like the concept of it. I thought it made a lot of sense. I read all the articles I could I could get. And then when I left my fellowship, I'd met four patients at Virginia who needed what I thought this therapy would, would be. And they lived uh, in between Virginia and West Virginia. My first week in practice, I actually had all those folks come see me as new patients. And we did four trials. And one of those patients had had rectal carcinoma and he had radiation and he was miserable. And I, I placed an implant in him, a trial, then a permanent. And he came back to see me for his two-week visit. And he came in. He had been in a wheelchair. He came back in walking and smiling. And um, it was amazing. And the second gentleman had a back fusion. And he'd been on high-dose morphine. And he came back to see me after he'd seen my PA about two months later. And he was off his morphine. And then the other two patients did well. So my first four patients were all very well-selected neuropathic pain patients who did phenomenally. Well, so I, I knew that if we could pick the patients correctly, we would have good outcomes in most of them. So that that was really when it was those early experiences with with these patients who I saw life changing events 
that I knew that we, if we could make this therapy better and better and pick the patients correctly, it could be impactful. Yeah. And then as far as being, you know, such a significant contributor with regards to research, how, how did that sort of get turned on for you? And what made you want to, uh, you know, really put pen to paper and move the ball down the field with, with doing, you know, these trials and helping to advance the field with research? Yeah. So I'll talk a little bit about a few different things and I'll, I'll start with one and then we can go into other things. So I've, I've worked in a lot of areas in pain. And so one area was intrathecal drug delivery. So I got my start there in research with a guy named Dick Penn, who was a neurosurgeon in Chicago and New York. And Dick had done a lot of research and he wanted to study octreotide, which is a type of growth hormone, but he, he didn't really have the ability to do it in his center. So Dick Penn approached me. He was working with Medtronic, a company that makes pumps. And, and they asked me if I would do the study, the initial pilot work for the feasibility study for the FDA. So that was my first real FDA interaction with Dr. Penn. And um, that, went, that went very well. Didn't get FDA approval, but it certainly went very well. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, I was introduced to a drug called SNX111, which became known as Iconotide later. And I got involved in that study. That study didn't work very well either um, because uh, there was a lot of side effects because we had too high of a dose. But eventually, we got the dose right, and, and that led to FDA approval. And they got involved in a cancer study with uh, uh, Tom Smith and Peter Stats. The three of us led it, uh, looking at pumps versus medical management. And that led to uh, FDA um, approval of, of intrathecal drugs for therapy and CMS payment for that therapy and became kind of a landmark article published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. So those were my first real steps into research in the intrathecal drug delivery field. Okay. And during this time, what is your, what's your clinical practice look like? Well, at that time, I was pretty much working uh, about 48 works a year um, in practice and a very high volume of, of patients, mostly spine, although I had a significant amount of cancer patients. And um, Certainly, it was a, we were a small group of physicians at that point here in West Virginia. We became a tertiary care center for the most part because we could do things other than epidural steroids and, and medications. We could do newer, more advanced things at that time. Okay. And so was that practice just an earlier version of the one which you currently practice? Yeah, I've been, I've only had one. So Justin, I've had one job my whole life. I came okay. out of a fellowship. <laughs> I took the job I'm in and I've been in this job ever since. So yeah, we've, we've, uh, we've changed with the times. We've modified things. We've done more and more research. Uh, we've done more and more pivotal IDE studies, but uh, at the end of the day, it's the same job I've had, the only job I've ever had. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, research in the private practice world versus doing it in an academic setting and, and how that differs? Yeah, it's funny you asked me that. I had a young man call me tonight uh, on my way home from work, and he he chosen an academic practice, and he asked me, you know, what did I think the differences were? So this this question is timely for a lot of people. Uh, you know, certainly if you're in an academic setting, you have a lot of support. You have colleagues around you who can give you a lot of insight and in, and in, in research uh, in, in experience. You have um, financial resources for the you know departments of research. So that part's easier. The part that's more difficult for the academician, which we have in private practice, we can decide what study we want to do pretty easily, going through the IRB locally or for a national IRB. Uh, and we can use each other as, as uh, advice. So we have a network of people around the country we've established. So I think in private practice, it's it can be quite easy to do research, but you have to spend the resources. For example, we have a great uh, research coordinator 
Amy Young in our practice and and she's phenomenal. So without without so if you have a private practice without some expertise like that, then you aren't going to do well. And then your other team members, your nurse practitioners, your PAs, your other physicians have to be on board with the philosophy that we're going to try to solve problems and answer questions. So in doing that, I was able to to help develop you know things like spinal modulation, uh, early stages of nevro. Uh, those are all things I was able to get involved with, which I, I don't. I'm not sure in an academic model I would have been it would have been as easy to be involved in those those projects. Yeah, it makes sense. Is so I'm curious, just from an economics standpoint, who pays for obviously like using expensive technologies and doing experimental treatments um, in different contexts is is not something that you can just do without significant financial resources. So in an academic setting, I would imagine that, you know, I think about University of Pennsylvania here in my backyard, they've got a lot of money, I guess, because they've got the pen endowment and all that. But in a private practice setting, how does that work? Who, who so, pays for stuff? Yeah. So the way it works, and again, this is all in the government websites, clinicalgov.com and things of that nature. Uh, if you're in a practice, uh, which is like University of California, San Diego, I have a good friend there who does a lot of research, then some of your funding will come through NIH grants and things of that nature. And that, that also occurs sometimes in private practice. But if someone wants to get FDA approval for a device or drug, it, you know the company themselves have to sponsor the study. That's not anything you can uh, change that you have to have a company sponsored FDA, what's called an IDE study, which is investigational device exemption. And that has to be funded by the company and supervised by the company with the FDA overlooking the study. So that's how you get approval for any device you want to develop in the United States. If, if you have a device that's anything essentially new, uh, for example, if you want to create a device that's just like my device, if I have a new device, you might get approval through another pathway where you don't have to do a study. But if it's a significant improvement in the care, the FDA would like you to do a study. So most of those are funded by, as multi-center studies uh, by the sponsor, which usually is a company. The company has gone with the FDA to get approval for their study. Uh, the study is designed by physicians and, and whoever the company may be. And then that study design is approved by the FDA and then what happens is during the study, and I've gone through this now on multiple occasions, the FDA will come to your clinic and audit your charts to assure you're following those protocols. So in a lot of ways, most of the studies that are done in the United States are phenomenal because the FDA oversight is quite good. They do a great job of oversight of the study. Now, one last thing about that. Some of these studies we have to do overseas initially because the FDA may not approve it right away. So for example, our spinal modulation study that I've uh, help design and help design the product actually for, for DRG. We did those studies early in Australia and Europe because it was easier uh, regulatory wise to get those studies up and running. And that led to the initial work. Whereas the Nevro study, which I was involved in on the scientific board, that was done uh, in the United States. So it kind of depends on the regulatory pathway, what type of device it is, uh, things of that nature. Mm hmm. Makes sense. So you mentioned early on you had Dr. Penn approach you while you while he was at Never or I guess he was the neurosurgeon at Medtronic and no, he no, sort actually, of uh, he wasn't at Medtronic. He was working with him in collaboration. He actually was a private oh, he was a private practitioner, but he actually was in academics as well up at the University of Chicago. And so he had a fund. He had been funded to do a study which he couldn't complete because he was slowing his career at that time. Got it. Okay. So the question I was going to ask is for someone who thinks, wow, this sounds interesting. I like the idea of working with experimental 
technologies that are cutting edge that are doing things that we haven't done before and I want to get involved. And it sort of necessitates these unique partnerships and collaborations between the FDA and device manufacturers. Um, how do you sort of break into that, <laughs> break into that career track or doing some of that work? Well, I think some of it comes down to ideas you have. For example, I've had some ideas that um, have led to development of products. For example, um, there's a company called Axonics, which uh, Ray Cohen runs as a CEO, who's a phenomenal uh, businessman and, and CEO. And uh, that, that product came about. Uh, we were collaborating. There's a guy named Al Mann, who was an extraordinary person who helped develop several companies, Advanced Bionics, uh, Bioness, several companies. And, but Al's foundation was working with myself and a couple of engineers. To, we were trying to develop a different product. We weren't trying to develop a sacral nerve stimulator. But as we went through the process of, of looking at different designs engineering-wise, and we went through different designs on the cadaver, the Cadaver Labs, we came up with what we fulfilled was really an extraordinary improvement on previous devices for incontinence. So that led to that development of that device, and I helped found that company. So sometimes you have ideas that you collaborate with other people, and you get together, and you come up with those ideas and develop those ideas. And half the time, that idea will fail, <laughs> and the device won't be made or it won't be successful. But sometimes the device is successful. And for example, uh, Axonics just got FDA approval in the United States for incontinence of both fecal and urinary um, disorders. So I, I think that goes to really show you where you can go from over five years, we go from an idea to a device that's been studied in level one studies in both Europe and America, and now is FDA approved for use in, in, in human populations and really a significant upgrade from previous devices. So that's one way you can do it. The other way you can do it is you don't have the idea, but you have a great research uh, facility you've created by being committed to compliance with uh, protocols, uh, committed to ethics and committed to having a team around you, which costs money and you have to use some of your own finances to do so. And then you then you, you make the, the folks aware that you're uh, willing and able to participate in studies, but it has to be something you believe is potentially better for your patients than what you currently do. Right. Well, the way you described that five-year collaboration uh, to to get something across the finish line with FDA approval and level one studies, that, that kind of makes the bad water sound a little bit easy, I think. <laughs> I think one's a mental uh, anguish and one's physical anguish, yeah. but uh, I'm not sure I'm not sure which is which <laughs> because they both have a little bit of little bit of both, you yeah. know. Uh, were there any studies that stick out in your mind as something where you uh, tried and tried and maybe it was like a, just a disaster or you came really close and it was like a, a bitter defeat <laughs> that left a mark on your psyche? Well, so, so let me, let me, if I could just, I'm a positive guy. Sure. So let me talk about, I'll talk very briefly about two or three really positive studies sure. that were great. And then I'll talk about a couple of things I wish would have turned out a little bit different. Okay. So well, I'm an optimist too, module, so I'm definitely good with that. Yeah. So the accurate study, we got FDA approval for, for DRG. And, and that was, to me, one of the best studies we've ever done. And, and uh, we compared DRG to conventional medical management, or, or pardon me, to conventional stimulation, uh, spinal cord stimulation for complex regional pain syndrome and causality of the limbs. And, and so to me, that was our, one of our best studies. I just completed a study called the BOLD study, which is a small study, uh, but you know, it's a study looking at low electricity levels to treat patients. So this bold study, which we hope to publish uh, over the next three months, is a multi-center uh, study looking at, can we use almost no electricity, 1.8 hours a day of electricity 
to, to help someone versus 24 hours a day of stimulation. And to me, that's going to be a phenomenal study. It may change the field, even though it's a small study. And then lastly, I'll mention the Saluda study, which we just completed uh, enrollment and now endpoints. That looks at the feedback loop uh, for stimulation, uh, where we actually measure what the cord's doing and the, the computer changes with the person several thousand times you know, a minute. So those are some studies that stand out as really positive studies I've been very proud of. There's probably 15 more. Negatively, uh, so, so to answer your question, I wasn't involved in the gabapentin study, and I really wanted it to be. So gabapentin is a drug orally that works quite well for pain. And so one of the, I think the company that made gabapentin and Medtronic combined to make a study for intrathecal gabapentin. And I tried to get into that study, but I wasn't invited in that study. I was run by some good friends of mine. And unfortunately that study failed. And I think that was really somewhat sad because we need a non-opioid intrathecal drug besides iconotide. And so I was so disappointed. I was sure that drug was going to work. And when the study came out that it failed, I was extremely disappointed because I thought we were going to have another option for patients. So I think that I think not getting into that study was probably my biggest disappointment in, in research thus far in my career. And you mentioned the BOLD study. That sounds really interesting. So I'm, again, not a clinician, obviously, but I know that one of the issues with the implantables is the charging. Um, and so I would imagine that if it's much, you're just using a lot less electricity that opens up new opportunities for longevity of devices and things like that? Absolutely. So I think there's two sides to this, this discussion. So for example, I mentioned a moment ago, the, the urinary incontinence stimulator, which you charge one maybe once a month and it's five CCs. That's one I was mentioning to you, we developed. And so if someone charges their battery once a month and they use, and it's a small battery, like sacral nerve stimulation, it's, it's not been shown to be an issue. In fact, it may be an advantage, but if you're using stimulation for pain, Generally, you recharge a lot more often. Now, people have tried things like Bluetooth connections and things like that. Most of those don't work very well for energy. In fact, it becomes very cumbersome unless there's a disc or something over the, the actually receiver, which works better. But in, in situations where you have to recharge your battery every day, studies have shown that patients get those devices explanted more than others. So if they have a device they never have to recharge in chronic pain, they tend to keep the device in and get it replaced when it dies. So the problem with that's been when you do high energy waveforms or high energy frequencies, that device doesn't last very long. So that's why people have to recharge it every day or every three days or every seven days. And patients get tired of that because there's a, you know, it's a reminder every time they recharge it that they're in pain. It's a reminder that they have to change their life. And so what happens is if we can get that where they recharge less or not at all, many people do better in pain therapy. So this study looks at using electricity either six hours a day or 1.8 hours a day. And we think there might be patients who could even use it less than that. And they have just, they have just optimal pain relief in six months to someone using it 24 hours a day. And what that does, it can increase the longevity of a non-rechargeable battery from three to five years, maybe up to 10 years. Wow. That's what the, F, that's what the FDA labeling may say. Uh, the FDA hasn't labeled that device yet. And I think we'll hear about that in the next a few weeks. But I think when we see that labeling, if it says, you know, seven to 10 years, that would be pretty impressive for patients that they wouldn't. Yeah. So I think that's what it may happen. That's why I say, even though it's a small study, I think it could potentially change the way we do things going forward. That must be incredibly exciting to be a part of stuff like that. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I think it's uh, hopefully we'll change some lives with that, you know, in a very positive fashion. Cool. So we mentioned before we, uh, before we hit record here about how, 
how much of the pain world, especially for for younger clinicians, there's there's a business element uh, in the private practice pain setting that is a little bit unique. And often, you know, what I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen the same, is that you know residency and med school very are very limited in the exposure that young clinicians get to sort of the the business side and the operations and the management side of what it means to run a pain clinic. So you mentioned you've only had one job. Can you talk about the evolution of the spine and nerve centers uh, over the years and how you have matured as a, as a businessman as part of that sort of that process? Yeah, let me talk. I, I think I'll answer your question, Justin, but I'll do it in a way that's more global. Yeah, that'd be I great. That's what's important for residents and fellows. So when I started out, you know, we were part of an anesthesia group, right? So pain was a small segment of that. And a lot of those groups didn't get along because the anesthesiologist was working in the OR and they wanted the pain person to come take call and vice versa. And it was really adversarial almost. And, and we, we left that model within five years. So we were one of the early groups to separate. And then what happened over time, the pain groups did very well, particularly if they were more interventional and they did things for the right reasons and they didn't use over-treatment, uh, they did very well. And so that was the next evolution. And then pain became opioid-focused in a lot of places. And there were these pill mills and terrible people making tons of money for the wrong reasons. So that, you know, I think that was the, the you know, there's good business and there's bad care. You can only have good business if you give good care. And so I always tell young people, do a great job for your patient. You will do fine financially. But that that's now gotten harder. So I'm not sure that's as true as it was five years ago. And what the evolution is now, there's very few freestanding groups left. Most groups have either been bought by larger groups and became a consortium, if you will, um, or they've people have gone to work as an employee of the hospital. So we're kind of uh, almost, you know, we're one of that small segment of people right now who we've not sold our practice. We've been offered many options to sell our practice, and we've not been employed by the hospital as of yet. So we're still freestanding to do that. You have to surround yourself with very good people. So I'll just spend two minutes telling you who those people are. You need a CF, you need a CFO, Jeff Peterson, our CFO is amazingly good. You need a, another, you need at least one partner who knows the business world well, who knows how to look at accounts receivable, accounts payable, you know, expenses, healthcare insurance for the employees. And so certainly I played that role. You need another partner or two who is a sounding board you can talk with who has a good understanding. So in our practice, that's Chris Kim, Nick Bremer, Warren Gray. So I use those gentlemen to give me advice. We're interviewing a few new folks to, to join us over the next uh, six months. So we're going to add to that. And then we need to think a lot about compliance. So I have compliance attorneys who looks at our healthcare compliance to make sure those are good. Um, and so that's very important. And then you need to have a proper billing company that bills properly. And that's part of your compliance and you have to do audits. So it takes a lot of folks to make that practice successful and it has to continue to be reevaluated. Every six months, we look at our practice very carefully. So I guess what my message is, it's evolved tremendously in 25 years, but now I think it's as hard as it's ever been if you're going to be independent, uh, but still very doable if you have the right team of people. Yeah, makes sense. So, you know, you mentioned the importance of, well, I mean, there's a lot of different roles there and they're all frankly indispensable. And probably when you try to wear too many hats, you you cease to be able to do anything well, just just like in anything else in life. Um, I'm curious for somebody, if there's a young um, pain physician out there who says, I want to I wanna be that guy who understands the business. 
who who can be the sort of the managing partner if you have like a law firm equivalent, somebody who is going to be a, a clinical participant, but also keep an eye on the business side of things. What kind of resources would you recommend, or where would you point them to really uh, develop that expertise? So that's a, such a great question. In a fellowship, you don't get that very much, and you're, then you're thrown into the world. Some people do go out on their own, and I think you have to get some mentors. For example, you know, American Society of Pain and Neuroscience, we created that society really so we could have information exchange and mentor young people uh, and use our older physicians to really help each other, but also help young doctor. And so a lot of times you have to go out to folks who've been successful, spend some time with them, you know, uh, spend three or four days in their practice, and then you have to pay for help. So that's, you may have to take a loan out, but you have to get a business person. Like, for example, a lot of people make their office manager someone uh, who has uh, no experience at all in business. That won't work very well. Or you make your spouse your office manager. Unless they're, unless they're a business person, that's a terrible idea. Uh, you have to go out and get real expertise and you have to pay for that. So I think all those things are critical. So mentors, really paying for people to help you. And if you can't afford someone full-time, you can go and, and talk to some of your mentors and say, who can help me with establishing my staff? Who can help me with establishing, you know, my compliance plan? Who, you know, so that sort of thing. But I think you have to get, again, a team of, of like-minded people with different skill sets around you. If you can't do that, then you probably should join a larger group. You join a larger group, you have two options. Stay there forever and become part of the community partner or learn from the older person in the group who's a managing person and over time go out on your own. And a lot of people do that. Very few people have one job. Most people have three jobs in their first five years of practice. So one way is to learn by watching someone else you respect. And you may not get along with and you may, may not want to stay there forever, but you may be able to learn everything you need to know during that time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the... ASPN, American Society of Pain and Neuroscience. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know this is a newer organization that you co-founded. Why why does ASPN exist? And what, what's your vision for this group, especially in the context of mentorship and sort of bringing up the next generation of pain practitioners? Yeah, we had, uh, you know, we had 520 people at our first annual meeting down in Miami. So we were pretty happy with that. Um, I, I, I thought it was going to be a small small, uh, simple uh, society, you know, but it, it's getting big quickly. Um, I, you know, I've been involved with almost every society and I'm, I'm pro, you know, INS, I'm pro NANS, I'm pro ASRA, I'm pro ASAP, pro WAPN. I'm not anti any society that exists currently, but I felt a real void uh, for young people. So a lot of people I meet, I train fellows and fellows courses and they would try to get on committees and they couldn't get on one and they would try to get, you know, uh, time to be on a panel or time to, you know, get involved in some activity or, or activism or whatever it may be. And they had to spend years trying to get involved. And I thought that was really unfortunate because the way we're going to change the field is take our brightest young people and, and help them develop uh, the skill sets they need to push forward. And we need as many of those people as we can get. So one night, one night I was sitting with Dawood Saeed, my friend from Kansas, and Dawood and I were talking and he trains fellows although he's a Kansas fan, which I, I have trouble with being from, in the Big 12, being from West Virginia, although we did beat Kansas last yeah. weekend in football. But but would I said, you know, why don't we create something where we can help these younger folks learn these skills, not just implanting devices, but, you know, speaking and mentoring and teaching and, you know, all those things they want to do and get a social media presence. And so we actually went out and started talking to some of the younger fellows and people out of training three or four years. And the excitement level I felt was huge. 
But we also have doctors who are 55 years old who, you know, wants to learn new procedures and, and things that didn't, wasn't around when they did their fellowship. And we felt there was a big need there as well to uh, mentor older physicians to learn new tools if they had the skill set. So there's so many needs. So we created this society uh, to be really a, a group of people uh, encouraging each other. And one of the things I really felt the need for in our field, you know, there's a lot of encouragement, but there's a lot of professional jealousy among doctors and among societies. And it's really detrimental. So our, one of our goals was to not let anyone join our society who was negative. We want only positive people who, for example, Justin, if you're successful, I should be happy for your success and I should try to make your success even better because that doesn't hurt me. That makes me look good because I'm your friend or I'm your colleague. And I think that's the attitude we're looking for with AS, with Aspen, ASPN, because we really feel like we need to be building success through each other and through that collaboration. And I think it's important that that be diverse. So one of our other major goals is to encourage women in the field. I'm, I have three daughters and a wife, so I'm, I'm very pro-woman. We need to help encourage our women colleagues, not just encouragement, but sponsorship and development and all other races, genders, uh, all those things. So we, we've also been a society uh, on our initial founding of diversity and inclusion. So we have so many goals that are so exciting and uh, we're going to continue to build on those, I believe, over the next few years. Yeah, that is incredibly exciting. Um, so if I am a fellow or a young uh, attending, and and I think this sounds interesting to me, and I'm kind of curious, what mechanisms specifically in Aspen are going to be, you know, how am I going to benefit? Like, what are the, what's the boots on the ground impact in my life if I join Aspen? Well, I think first of all, so a couple of things. First of all, if you're a fellow, it's free to join Aspen. So we don't charge fellows. And if you're not a fellow, we charge $100. Most societies I belong to are $1,000 or pretty expensive. So we made it kind of uh, an inexpensive way to, to, to collaborate. But the main advantage is the network you'll find there of like-minded people. So you know, our average age in our society is under 35 if you average all of our membership ages together. So we got a very good group of young people. Um, and so I think one is you have a network of people immediately you can talk with, email, see at conferences. Two is our annual meeting that we have is only panels. We don't have any, there's no, but there's no Tim Deere lecturing to you for two hours, telling you what's right and wrong. I might be on a panel with 12 people. So, when, you know, so we actually made it so that no one's more right than anyone else, you know? So we have 12 people up on stage and we disagree then the audience can decide who's right. And so there's no one that, that's right necessarily. That's a lot I of fun, but it's also good. Uh, yeah, it's been really, really positive. And you know, I've done similar things in the past, but that's our, our, our main goal there. And then we have a think tank. Now, the think tank is not uh, CME accredited. So it, it can be, so people that, like, for example, let's say you have a startup company. Let's say Justin has a startup company today. You can come to the think tank. You can get on the podium because it's not CME accredited. Of course, we're not giving you credit to be there. And you can talk about your project. Well, somebody in the audience may say, Justin, that's a horrible idea. You know, here's what we think you should do. And so that think tank is a really unique uh, setting. We had 90 people in Aspen, Colorado last March. We're having our second one down in the Bahamas uh, here in next March. And so that's a unique thing. And then we have a, a workshop out in December out in Phoenix. Uh, and we have, you know, Relievant, uh, which is, uh, you know, a new technique. We have, you know, um, uh, things like Corner Lock, which is a new SI fusion technique. We have things, you know, we have Vertos, we have Vertiflex, we have all these new skill sets that we have a lot of physicians coming to learn that they may not get in fellowship because in fellowship, many of these newer techniques aren't taught. First root gangling stimulation is taught in some fellowships now, but not all. So there's all these things out there that 
you know, we can offer. So, and most of our instructors at that, at that course are people that are very young. They've been out of fellowship five years or less, and now they're instructing other people just out of fellowship. So it's kind of exciting that younger people are teaching younger people. Having said that, we've got some older physicians like myself, um, Mike Ascari, uh, other people who is going to come there and also teach. And so that hopefully they'll get some experience uh, that, you know, learn about what we've done. So, I mean, there's so many things I could go on and on, Justin, but that's, I think you can see we're trying to make this pretty unique and pretty yeah, collaborative. Absolutely. And as you're describing it, I'm, I'm thinking about um, what I've heard about the, the NANS residents and fellows section. Uh, and sort of the the push there to do, do many of the same things. It sounds like how how would you sort of differentiate it or distinguish between those? If I'm you know sort of sitting on the sidelines saying, oh, that kind of sounds like there's a lot of overlap there. Oh, we have a lot of good friends. So we have a lot of members in both. So you know, first of all, I'm an I'm a NANS member. Uh, I've been on the board of NANS in the past. Uh, president of the INS. INS is the uh, over you know the overall international society that all uh, chapters uh, are, are within that uh, that kind of umbrella. And NANS is one of the chapters of INS. So I'm very pro-NANS. Uh, you can be in both and you can do both. Uh, there's parts of the NANS residency fellowship programs that some of the leadership there are also leaderships in our society. So I don't think there's any any difference. Uh, the, the main difference, I think, is it's just a different identity as far as you know what you're actually doing. You're, not, you're, you're breaking away from the residents and fellows and becoming your own person. So as you evolve, you know, I don't think you're going to be in the resident fellow sections forever. Hopefully you're going to evolve. And, and uh, as you evolve, you know, I think uh, it's a really logical place to make that part of your evolution. And I would encourage you to stay in NANS as well and, and, and work there. ASRA is a very good society that you know, I've done a lot of work with over the years. So there's other societies you can evolve in too. But I think that, you know, our goal is to make the politics of, of how to do that very easy for you if you're a well-trained energetic person who's nice to sure. other people. <laughs> if you're if, if you're not if you're not if you're not well trained, you're not nice, you're not collaborative, we'd rather you not come and join yeah. us. Yeah. Well I love the positivity. I can tell, you know, I'm I'm sort of picturing you in this like endurance athletics sort of situation. And unless you're like an indomitable optimist, there's no other way you can, you know, run those marathons, especially at the end of a 112 mile bike and all that. So you know this is all coming together in my mind <laughs> as you're describing your vision for Aspen. I want to just close with one more question, and I really thank you for your time this evening, Tim. So you, you know, you're a very accomplished physician. You're an accomplished athlete. A lot of the things that you've done require a lot of sacrifice. So I'd love to hear just a brief story or anecdote about one of your proudest moments as either a doctor or an athlete or a father or a husband that made you glad for the sacrifice, glad for the effort, glad for all the time that you've put in. Well, you know, I always tell people, and particularly young people, a couple of rules I have, you know, and one rule is for men, particularly who have had trouble with their fathers. My dad left when I was a young, pretty young child and, and I forgave him later and we became very close. So for young men, I always say, you know, and I'm sure the thing thing applies for young women. I just can't speak to that. But I always say, forgive your father if, if something goes wrong. So I think that's one thing I'm kind of always giving people advice for. The other advice I give people though, that I think is really important is, is when you die, the only people that's going to remember you is your family and your friends. You know, you might be as as well known in whatever field you're in as anybody's ever been. But when I when I go out and ask fellows, you know, do you remember such and such? You know, Sam Hassenbush, one of my mentors, John Oakley, one of my mentors, both of who passed away over the past decade. And most fellows have never heard of either one of those doctors, and they impacted me dramatically. So I think one thing we have to always remember is that the thing you should be most proud of should always be what you do with your family. 
So I think the thing I'm most proud of, Justin, to be quite honest with you, I have four children and uh, they're all doing phenomenally well. Um, and, you know, they're all uh, really proceeding in their educations. So they're they're going to be very impactful to society. You know, so uh, one of my daughters is, is really doing well in nursing, one in law school. My son's going uh, probably into some of the industry you're in and to the, the world of uh, business and, and devices and such. And then my youngest child is pre-law. So I think seeing them all do well and see them, you know, become not only just smart people, but good people doing the right things for the right reasons and having good ethics. Uh, to me, that makes me proud every day. And when they call me for advice, you know, Justin, the best thing in the world is when your 25-year-old <laughs> calls and says, I need some advice, dad, or you're 20-year-old in college, you know. So I think the fact they call me for advice a lot of times uh, makes me extremely happy because that tells me that we did something right. And then the last thing I'll tell you is uh, I'll have my 30th anniversary in January. And certainly I'm very proud of that because, you know, 30 years of, with one person I think is, uh, is, a, is a great thing to accomplish. And it takes two people to give a lot and to take a lot yeah. from each other. And I think uh, being able to do that has been, uh, I think, one of my greatest accomplishments and my wife's greatest accomplishments. And hopefully we'll continue that for 30 more years if she can keep putting up with me. Mm, well, that is that's excellent. And I'll tell you, as somebody who's expecting his first child in December and who just passed the one year mark of marriage, um, I, I take that to heart and that's, uh, that's really great to hear. Thank you very much for sharing that. Uh, my pleasure. So Dr. Timothy Deer, it's been a pleasure speaking with you this evening. Thank you for your time and thank you for joining us on the anesthesia success podcast. Well, Justin, thank you for having me. And I think, uh, I wish you nothing but the best, sir. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiasuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.